Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. I'm excited to have artist Sharon Loudon on the show today. If you've been listening to this podcast, then you've probably heard me mention and recommend the book she edited, Living and Sustaining a Creative Life, Essays by 40 Working Artists. As an artist, Sharon has shown work all over the world. She maintains a studio in Brooklyn, uh, but is currently based out of Minneapolis. And in addition to all the activity surrounding the book, which we'll get into, she has many projects brewing, including two upcoming solo exhibitions and uh, upcoming animation project. So we'll get to dive into all of that and more. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. First of all, congratulations on all the success with this book. Um, I first heard about you. Thank you. Yes, and I first heard about you and the the book on Michael Shaw's podcast called The Conversation, which is a terrific podcast people should know about and check out. And uh, so I immediately, you know, ran out, got the book, and clearly it, it resonates with me, and clearly it resonates with a lot of people, uh, probably in part because it feels real and honest. These essays are are such you know so real and honest. And it really goes beyond the issue of, you know, how to make a living. It goes much deeper than that. Um, but at any rate, I found it uh, inspiring and honestly applicable to an artist of any discipline. That's awesome. I'm, I feel uh, grateful that, that it touched you and reached you. And, and I do feel humble that um, it has touched a lot of people. It was never a money-making venture for any of us. We started this book all volunteering to do this, and, and then the eight, as you, as you know from teaching, the 8% profits of the, uh, because it's an academic book, I split with all the contributors. So our first royalty check was $10.04 a piece. So <laughs> it was never, right, that, that bought, a, uh, for me at least, my choice of spending that money was a box of cereal and a, uh, at a carton of milk in New York. So that was, but that was great. It, it provided many days of breakfast, but <laughs> nonetheless, it, it is, it is not uh, and you didn't ask this, but I just wanted to chime in and say how it's a labor of love uh, for me. And I'm so grateful that it reached you and I'm grateful it reaches many people. And mostly it, it has started a lot of conversations. And I think that that is the most important aspect of the book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely want to talk about the book and, and some specific points on the book. But before we do that, uh, I want people to know, uh, you know, the people that are listening, I want them to know you and what, what you're all about and uh, where you come from and a little bit of background. And I always like yeah. to do that sort of right up uh, right up top of the show here. And you spoke a, b- a little bit about your history on uh, Michael Shaw's podcast, and and there's a little bit of that in the intro to the book as well. Your your introduction about sort of living in, uh, starting to uh, live and struggling with sort of student loan debts and bills, and being a young uh, artist in in New York City. And right. um, so, I, but I wanted to ask maybe uh, if there were any specific experiences that you wanted to talk about during those formative years or early years that. Uh, propelled you into where you are now? When, at least for me and, and other people, I think perhaps 
this is their experience or it can be a shared experience. Um, when you're in a position where you really want to do something, you have it in within you, this urge to produce. And for me, my I've always been an artist since I don't remember, like five years old and uh, I guess, um, but I've always been making work and um, I never decided to be an artist. It just is, has always been there. My husband asked me, um, have you, when did you decide to be an artist? And I said it was just decided for me, essentially. Um, and so when, when I couldn't do those things uh, because of financial constraints or, or otherwise uh, affects in my uh, home and uh, certain situations that occurred in my childhood, I, I got stronger and that anger propelled me to drive forward and certainly propelled me to do the book, that's for sure, because my disappointment of things uh, in, in academia as far as uh, the same questions coming up over and over again, um, and, and then also when I got out of school with all that debt, not having a sufficient, um, at least for me, uh, community and not knowing how to create that community myself, but also garner support from community and exchange. Um, those were all uh, reasons that continue to allow me to propel and go forward. So I think anger actually was a great um, uh, contributor. And also another thing that was contributor was just um, uh, with my work ethic. I come from a family of very hard workers and, I think work is a privilege. Uh, so I, I think that that drive is in my genes. I mean, I know where it's from because my, my, my father is like this, my grandmother is like his mother, and then her father is exactly like this. So it goes all the way back. I think that that was a big part of it. But thank you for allowing me to go on there because I was trying to figure that out as I was, as I was answering the question. Well, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned this this work ethic and energy um, because, you know, as I was doing research for the show and, and trying to learn as much as I could about your work and sort of what, what you were up to, um, you know, I started reading all the things on your website, uh, one thing after another, and, and you're going here and doing this, and uh, you have a solo show coming up and, and working with all the, the book tour, and there's just a lot of activity, and I showed to my wife, and we were... <laughs> We were looking at it, and and my wife says, "Do you think she sleeps? I'm not sure if she sleeps." <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Excuse me. So, so for the record, Sharon, do you, so for the record, do, do you actually sleep? <laughs> no, that's so funny that you say that. Um, just, uh, it's very funny. I have a lot of sleep issues. That's actually a huge thing. That's it might be TMI, but it's actually. I mean, I think it's because I'm wired in this way. Um, and I won't get too far into that, but I, I think that, uh, I do have sleep issues, but I try as best as I can to get, uh, a little bit of sleep every night, but I, I love what I do. And I, I think we have a short life. I really believe that. I think that every day is very precious and, uh, I don't take anything for granted. I try to maximize every moment that I can, um, and I, I just don't, I, I know that sounds sort of morbid in a way, but hopefully it, it may sound to your listeners a good uh, philosophy of living. Um, 
but it works for me at least. I just love to max out, and that sometimes pummels my body a little bit. But um, but I, I, I love to reach for things. I think it's important of, I think, seizing the moment, and I do believe that um, momentum is extremely precious. Yeah. Um, and so I, I try to maximize um, that momentum as much as I can. Yeah. Um, well, I just I want to follow up on something that you said earlier, um, because I think it sort of ties into something that you wrote in the book. And, and it certainly resonates with my experience of being in a graduate school. And uh, one of the things that you note in, in that um, you said, uh, let's see. I expected that the feeling of utopia which followed from the fluid exchange and sharing of ideas among my fellow students at graduate school would continue once I graduated. Uh, I had this, mm-hmm. I had the very same experience, you know, when I was in grad school, surrounded by people who had uh, <coughs> similar energy and, and enthusiasm for what they were doing, and there was this excitement mm-hmm. of, you know, we're doing, we're, you know, exploring new ideas, and we're, we're here we are together in this, and there's just this energy that happens when you're in graduate school with people that are just like you, you know, doing work and, uh, and, and then you get out in the, in the real quote unquote, in the real world. And that community is is perhaps not there. I mean, uh, in other words, you've, you've had to kind of cultivate that. And you, you mentioned that in what you said earlier, that cultivating or finding a community. So, in part, I suppose that's what this book does. But how how did you go about establishing and, and cultivating that community for yourself once you got out of school? You know, it's a great question. I, I think I just got lost. I got back to when you were talking about you, too, sharing this experience of, um, of your graduate uh, life, too, and then getting out. I was just I was just wandering for a moment because I remember those days really fondly. Yeah. Um, and I re- I remember too, and I'm sure for you too, that that as time goes on, um, you know, life around us gets different. People are interested in different things, um, uh, different trends in the world. Uh, at the time when I graduated, it was before 9/11, so the life was really different. Uh, so I just, I started, I started swimming in that. Sorry. (laughs) Um, but, uh, to answer your question, you know, I, I, I think life is about the people you meet. And so, uh, I'm a people person, although with my work though, I'm extremely private. I don't like to have anybody in my studio. It's really the only thing I have that's truly mine and myself uh, until I, Uh, allow it to evolve into the world. I think that I'm naturally curious about what other people do. I feel I I love to learn from other people. I love exchange. I love to get to know people, and I feel privileged to have experiences with others. So cultivating a community was natural for me. But then professionally, if you're asking me that, uh, I just think that, um, uh, and I teach professional development, um, and I always say that your database, uh, your mailing list, let's say, is your is is a currency for every single person. And I think that forming or establishing your audience by doing the research to figure out who is out there that speaks the same dialogue as myself that I can have, <clears throat> excuse me, an exchange with, and um, 
and a rapport and grow with and collaborate with and have a experience with people. I, I don't do things professionally to just get to that marker and then have it done with. I do things professionally to collaborate with others to have a life experience. Um, and so I, I, I have grown to love that more and more, and many people that I actually do projects with, uh, they stay in my life, and I sustain relationships with them beyond a shared experience uh, in the hopes that we have other shared experiences and I can learn from them. So that, that's how I cultivate and sustain a community. But also my husband, as you are a percussionist, which is awesome, and as you know, my husband is a jazz drummer, and he is a musician. He's also a political activist, and he's a producer, and he's my project manager as well. He has all these hats. Um, through, through him, and also what's so great, I'm turning back to you now, the, the music aspect, uh, musicians have to cultivate a um, community in order to sustain their lives because they're dependent on other people to perform with. And I think that's a great metaphor also for visual artists because you can't do anything essentially professionally without another person. I mean, thinking about like putting an artwork up and then allowing that intangible conversation with someone looking at it, that is a collaborative experience and exchange inherently. So mm -hmm. I think that it's all social at the end of the day, no matter what. Well, that's really interesting uh, that you would say that because I, I've, uh, you know, one of my mentors is, uh, is uh, from uh, my days in Cincinnati. Alan Audi has a member of the percussion group Cincinnati. And one of the things that I noted about him and the, the group, the percussion group Cincinnati, is that they seem to value relationships. What I mean by that is in, in the sort of in the classical music world, the new music world, concert music there there's a tendency for some people to just see you know who the who the really uh hotshot composer on the scene is and sort of tie your lasso to that star in hopes that you know you're playing this music and hopefully will be recognized because of the composer's name is attached to it uh and then probably the the other the you know the reverse of that is also true composers looking at the next you know big solo star of the music world and <laughs> wanting to hitch their star, to, you know, to uh, hitch their lasso yeah. to that star. But what I found yeah. in my own work and sort of inspired by Al uh, is that it, it's almost, for, for me personally, more important to have, like you say, a, a, a connection with that person, uh, that it's, it's actually mm -hmm. more about the relationship than the, than the actual product. Uh, and you know, if the relationship's good and the communication is, is good and, and you're both interested in doing interesting things, then the, the end product will also be good, you know, or at least be reflective of, of what you are trying to, or a, a result of your, your work together. Does that sort of ring true yeah. with you also? I think, yeah, I think the quality, I love that you explained all that because I think that also that's just the uh, connection between all the art forms is that I think that that experience of living through that um, is the is the precious part of it is the is the reward if you will not necessarily the end result I mean it makes you feel good I think when 
you receive accolades from other people and I mean certainly to get an award or I mean we're human beings but um, or, or some kind of recognition um, that let's say for, for you and, and music that your um, as you said that your piece gets uh, heard by many and then established through who you work with um, but I do believe those relationships I love that you gave that example of the group Cincinnati and their relationships, um, it, it resonates with me. And that's a core of it. And then taking that back to the book, for me, that uh, those relationships with the people that I chose, some of them have gotten much stronger, that I've, I've now had, you know, much more, have uh, friendships with them that are deeper. And, and then also, in addition, through the book tour that we've had, which we're still on, I can't believe it. We just got a call actually the other day that we're going to Ireland on the oh, book wow. tour. Um, we, the, 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 I've met thousands of artists on this book tour. And so I feel really humbled and grateful to meet all those people as well. I just think that it's uh, human nature to also uh, work with a lot of different people. And, and because we're in the arts, it's a, a wonderful, happy, happy thing. So uh, let's, since you mentioned it, let's let's touch on that. I mean, there's been a you've been getting a lot of press, and there seems to be a lot of activity going on surrounding uh, the book. And this book tour that you mentioned, I think on the website you mentioned something like 57 plus uh, stops so far, and with yeah. with no slowing we've, down yeah, inside. Yeah, we've had 58 now. 58, 58 now. now. Well, uh, this this podcast will it will uh, be you know downloaded. Probably the first week of April. Um, if you have anything, any events that are coming up in April or May that you want to give a plug to, uh, it's perfectly uh, fine to do so. Oh, well, thank you. Yes, we do. On May 1st at 12 o'clock, we're going to the Girls Club, uh, which is in, uh, in Fort Lauderdale, I want to say, either Boca Raton or Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And uh, we're going there on May 1st at 12 o'clock. We're going to do a conversation there. And then um, I'm doing another one on April 20, before that, April 25th, for a big conference in Cumberland County in Vine, New Jersey, for the day from 1 to 4 p.m. And uh, those two are the only ones uh, that I've scheduled. And then... This one in Ireland, I think that will be the last one on this book tour because uh, I would like to get to do another book, but also I need to get to get back into my own work uh, more because that's my identity. I mean, that's my life. I've right. always been an artist, and this is, uh, I mean, I, I think I couldn't do this book without coming from this perspective. But thank you for asking. And I also read that you mentioned just now that there's a second edition coming up with maybe a more international perspective? Yes, thank you. I'm working on that. I'm in negotiation right now with my publisher of the contract, um, and uh, we are hammering out some de details, and uh, we're, we are going to be working on a second edition, a second book, the same book, but more detailed Essays, I found that through the book tour that people wanted to know more, which I understand. I mean, these, I had no idea when I did this book that I would ever do one book event at all. I never thought I would do any book events or any book tour. This was never 
really conceived of when I did the book. I never thought that it would blow up like it did either, uh, which is wonderful. But now that I know that and I have that information and I've heard many voices on the book tour, I know what to ask for the next book as far as to direct the, uh, the essays a little bit more, less just beginning of conversation, more detail, mm-hmm. um, or in, more in-depth. Uh, and then, but just like the last book, no advice, straightforward uh, essays, plain and simple, honest. And I'm grateful that you mentioned that word because that was very important for me in this book for it to be extremely honest. Thus, I had to know the the uh, artists that I chose enough to be sure that that was the case and know their voices and know their life enough that I could select uh, what out of their life to really focus on, uh, at least for some of them, knowing them that some of them have done many different things just to get a wide range, but also uh, in, in the book itself, but also in their in some of them in their lives, and some of them just to focus on certain things that they do other than other things they do. Uh, so the second edition will indeed be more international. I actually have a few people that I really think are exceptional artists in Scotland um, somebody in Australia, you know, I can't remember off the top of my head right now who's in the next edition uh, because I selected all the the uh, uh, essayists, I should call them. But this time around, too, I'm sorry to go on in this. I just want to mention this as well because people have asked me what the differences are. The last book, since I did not know that we were doing a book tour, uh, I didn't know how these contributors would be up on stage and some of them didn't do well on yeah. stage and yeah. a few of them were a little were a little bitter too bitter for me so i'm not interested in that so this time around i selected people i know who are going to be generous not only in their essays but on stage and beyond most of the people in the first book were it's just that i don't want most i want all of the people in the in the uh, this next edition to be generous and available as much as possible. Sure, it, and that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. I mean, you 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 are the editor, <laughs> so uh, you know <laughs> you have to editorialize. Thank you for that. I yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I don't. I don't know how much we want to focus on on more on the book, but I do have a couple of other questions that that I'd love to hear your response to concerning well, thank you. concerning the book. One is that, you know, you wrote in your introduction that there are four invaluable lessons to be learned from the book, and and these artists sort of respond to them. One is uh, they show how uh, an artist can turn an obstacle into an inspiration. The second one is they explain to people why money is not the only measure of artistic success. The third one is they attack the myth of the poor, struggling artist— and four, they address what you say are delicate questions of educational debt and community support of the com- in a competitive culture. Now, we've already sort of talked about community, uh, but I wonder if out of those four <laughs> points, maybe you could pick one and respond, get your own personal take, because we didn't, I mean, we got your introduction, but we didn't really get your, your essay to, to answer all of these questions. So maybe for us, you could maybe just pick one and explain. Well, I think the last one we did address, you're right. I think the first three, for me, morphed into one, 
I divided them out, and, and you're so amazing to ask these uh, very uh, thoughtful questions, and clearly you've read this book. Um, but uh, I, I, I wanted to talk about also the economy, the creative economies, essentially, or the economy of creative people and how it contributes to the world. And um, I didn't talk about that, obviously, directly, but by, but by saying demystifying the myth of a struggling artist or uh-huh. uh, or like a loser musician or a dancer who doesn't have a life after 30 or uh, what is a poet doing, never leaves their house. I mean, there's, there's all these sort of uh, horrible stereotypes that are still out there in the world. And being on this book tour, wow. And also, I have to say, in addition, responses to the book uh, from the public uh, and through the book tour, I've also noticed that uh, I think people still think artists look a certain way. So I've said this so many times on the book tour um, that they look a certain way. So they look like perhaps they've never taken a shower or they paint all over their face or um, maybe they cut their ear off. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the second thing they uh, they're lazy, which is so not true. The third thing is that they're not contributors to. They're isolated and and not don't know how to go into the world. And I just think that's extraordinary because in December of 2013, the NEA produced a, a terrific report that talked about how uh, creative economies are a huge strong component of the uh, general economy in this country. And I just think that uh, through many things like design thinking, which is a wonderful thing that's not used so much in this country, but used in other countries in Australia and Asia, uh, perhaps in Europe where artists come in uh, hired by uh, corporations to be able to give um, input as consultants um, objectively on different products. Uh, if you will, or different ideas to, from an artist's point of view, or through, let's say, uh, just the fact that artists um, and and not so much maybe musicians, but maybe musicians have to hire a venue at times, or they have to produce their own CDs. Um, for a artist, generally, we have a lot of costs. We have to buy materials. We hire people to assist us, meaning framers or uh, let's say if we have to frame our work, or photographers, website designers. And if we could do all that ourselves, most of the time we need a separate studio, so that's a separate mortgage or a separate rent. So not often in this country where, where uh, people actually have two properties that they have to care for and the utilities that go behind that. So I just think that the starving artist idea is, should be and is gone. I do think that artists are more cultural producers in so many ways and that they contribute to the world in providing, obviously, entertainment, uh, but they also provide ways of thinking out of the box. So if more arts funding and arts education was back in this country, um, I think we would have thinking out of the box a lot more, that risk-taking, which um, has been proven to garner success in those who are self-employed in business and people who are running companies, 
they have to think out of the box all the time. And so those ways in which artists and creative individuals think can be applied and monetized. And it's just a shame that in this country we're still so far backwards in how we, our perception of people who do contribute to creative economies. One of the reasons why I moved to Minnesota from New York City is because Minnesota is the only state in the country that has the most funding for per capita for every artist and creative individual in the state. And because of that uh, wonderful support and putting their money where their mouth is, but also art space being headquartered here with many buildings, housing for artists, which now they do, they have been all over the country. And then also just the philosophy of how artists and creative individuals can give to the economy um, is extraordinary. And I, I just think it's a progressive way of thinking, whereas it's, in some ways it's, it's actually not. In Europe, it's a traditional way of thinking. So that um, point especially obviously is, uh, hits a nerve for me that this book actually generated tremendous conversation about that aspect. So I think that we should leave the romanticism to the movies and start embracing creative endeavors for the benefit of business, for the benefit of humanity and living. That's uh, essentially, and being a, a forward-thinking, progressive, uh, uh, contemporary society. Uh, you might have just answered this question, and I, I, as sort of an aside, I did want to bring it up, but one of the things you said on Michael's show was... Uh, that this is really the best time ever to be an artist. And, and maybe you've just yes. sort of answered that question, but maybe you can elaborate a bit more on how you've become optimistic, uh, what you've seen that's made you uh, say something like that. Well, that the, uh, the things I just said previously m- m- make me frustrated. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm clearly frustrated uh, by the fact that this state of mind of uh, individuals and excusing or dismissing uh, what a creative person can actually give to society. I mean, it takes two to tango, so the other person also, I mean, the artist has to also do the work to be able to communicate to a public. I blame, too, that us as creative individuals, uh, we haven't done the work enough to do that. And then the public coming forward as well in order to collaborate. Um, But when I say that it's the best thing ever to Right now, of course, because there's so many opportunities out in the world, not only for artists, but also for musicians, for actors, for dancers, um, for creative individuals, because we can make our own opportunities without judgment. I think when I got out of school, I did, I could not do certain things because it was sort of poo-pooed and, and, and uh, disregarded. Uh, but now, if an artist does a pop-up show or musician has a one-night, it's more acceptable for musicians, I think, um, because it always has been. But getting out of the box and doing different things, people are looking for different things all the time to be uh, in a cool factor or perhaps a scene. And I think that even though that may sound very shallow, I think it's awesome. If it works for the artist and the creative person to be able to enable them to express themselves in the way in which that works for their vocabulary. Uh, so I, I think it's a great time. There's so many avenues for artists, especially here in Minnesota. I, I, that's the reason we've been coming here for five years. And, and, and as I said, life is about the people you meet and the 
friends that we've cultivated here are they're really beautiful people and believe in the spirit of uh, living and living a good life and humanity. And it's not to say that my friends in New York don't feel that way, but New York has this way of embracing culture but never really fully able to support it. And it's not also to say that I'm looking for handouts or that artists need to be fully supported. I do believe, as I said, artists have to do the work as well. But when it becomes so impossible for artists to actually live in in a city that the costs are so high that don't match the income that's generally uh, generated for a creative person, that then becomes very much about suffering for, for at their expense and for the gratitude, not gratitude, but for the... Um, a benefit of others enjoying their craft. Yeah. Um, and that's what I have a problem with. Yeah, well, th- that's definitely something that I wanted to ask you about was how, and you sort of elaborated on it already a little bit, but how being an artist in Minneapolis is different from being an, an artist in, in New York. And so par- partly it's very expensive to live there and there are more opportunities for funding and whatnot in Minneapolis. But maybe you could elaborate a little bit more like on a daily basis, how is it different? Like what kinds of things do you have access to in Minneapolis that you may not in New York City or vice versa? And I'm also keeping in mind that sort of you still keep a studio in New York. Is that correct? Yes, but I'm closing that down. Oh, I okay. Not, I don't need it. So at the end of July, I'm not going to have it anymore. Um, I, I think let's start with the reverse, if you don't mind. Sure. The things I'm missing from here are the daily uh, culture that is so high in New York. The, the, or let's just say it's different. Is New York has this uh, plethora of different cultures that are there in one um, jam-packed place, and there's so many things that you can do and see when you're there. And just knowing that I could go to the Met at any day and go to the Corbet Room and lose myself in that. But the problem is, that uh, there was, after 23 years of living there, I was struggling to find the time to even do that. Uh, So I think that um, it's a contradiction for many artists, and I I just could not find it. Um, I I think it's essential for artists who are younger, but for me now, um, I'll be 51 in May, I just didn't want to do that anymore. I got tired of it. Um, and I think that my values for myself also changed. I always wanted to live in a house. Uh, I didn't like it after a while that if I, I was li- I lived in, the mo- for the most part, a one-bedroom apartment like many New Yorkers for years and years, and just uh, not being able to do certain things like at 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm a late-night person, so at 4 o'clock in the morning, like singing or expressing myself, and then I hear people knocking on the door or on the walls, like telling me not to do that. And just little things like when I walked out of my apartment, I immediately bump into somebody. I just did not want to live that way more just personally. And it's so easy to, to now travel two hours. It just takes a two-hour flight, and I'm 15 minutes from the airport. I know that eventually I am going to miss a lot of New York because I lived there for so many years, and so many of my friends were there. But I go to New York so often because I have a, a job there. I, I'm, I manage and moderate and organize a lecture series for the New York Academy of Art, which I love, and I love that institution. And so I'm there, like, I mean, this year I'll be there six to eight times this year. So I think that having my base here, which was much lower cost of living, quieter, 
and a rich community of different people in the arts. I mean, the Guthrie and the theater community here is very, very established and considered extremely respectful in, in the country, um, as is the many arts and the Walker Art Centers here and the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Wiseman is here. Um, there's the Soap Factory. What else do we have? The Third Rail is based here. There's just so many different institutions that are active in promoting culture and exchange in the visual and performing arts here. It's extraordinary. And the, my husband being, like I said, a jazz musician, he would go to a club on a Monday night. It was packed. Uh, so that, the regard for that is really absolutely lovely. And I think that also the other, the, it's funny, people would think that maybe I've moved here and um, it's just short of retirement for me being here. But I have to tell you, John, that I'm busier than I've ever been living here. And it seems insane. I thought I was going to come here, spend hours outside in my backyard, <laughs> and contemplate things. I haven't gotten there. I don't even know when I'm ever going to get to that point. And I, I know that I've controlled my life, and I can actually stop my what I do and not say yes to certain things. I mean, I can... We all control what we do, um, but I love what I do too much to not, like I said before, maximize uh, my life. But I, I do think that uh, you can be extremely active wherever you are in the country. And one of the reasons why in my book that I had 19 people from different parts of the country outside of New York, 19 people were from also New York because I lived there for some years, and that was my community, and then two people from Europe, I noticed that let's say, um, Beth Lippman in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. She's extremely busy and has two twin girls, has a husband who helps her, and you would never even think she lives in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, because her work is out there internationally all over the world. And I can't even talk to her. Like, if I make a call into her, I can't, I won't hear from her for days because she's so busy. So I, I just think it, it doesn't matter anymore necessarily, but... It, it, it does, I think, uh, make a difference as far as accessibility around where you are and where you want to situate yourself. And I know I'm going on about this, but if you would just permit me to say one more thing. Absolutely. Is that, yeah. is, is that uh, I also work for Creative Capital, and I was doing these one-on-one -on -one sessions. And one person I spoke with yesterday lives in rural Ohio. And um, I, he was just saying that he doesn't have those effects that you have in New York or even Minneapolis or Houston where you are. And he, but he was saying what he does do for himself to be able to get what he needs. He travels every now and then. Social media is a great way to access and have conversations with people. So I think the world is very different than it was when I got out of graduate school where everything was very local. Now, going around the country and doing this book tour, I do really think everything is still local in many ways, very regional. Um, there are communities that works that, that which it works for them, meaning Baltimore and Las Vegas. I found those two communities very exciting and motivating and stimulating and open and reminds me of Minneapolis that those two places would be our places on the rise for people in the arts that actually can also, like Minneapolis, have affordability and support for the arts. That is a long answer to your question. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's great, and it, it brings up some other uh, 
questions, which uh, you mentioned. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the work that you do at the the New York Academy of Art, and you also list on I believe I read it on your website at Minneapolis College. So you're doing some teaching in addition to all of this work with the book and all of your creative work. You're also <laughs> doing some teaching. So is what you do at the New York Academy of Art just the lecture series? The New York Academy of Art and Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Those two places, um, the, the New York Academy of Art, um, I love that place because it is like a utopia. Um, the students there are so lovely. I love that word for them. Uh, they're bright-eyed, beautiful. Most of them are. It's so optimistic. I walk in there, and, and there's flowers blooming everywhere, it feels like to me. I love the dean, Peter Drake, who's in my book. He was actually a... Uh, a friend of mine, and uh, well before we worked together at the Academy, and um, he's such a passionate, um, beautiful person that believes in, in artists, and then David Kratz, the president, those two um, gentlemen are running that school to try to do the best they can to be able to um, place it in the in the contemporary world. It started by Andy Warhol, and a few other founders um, in the eight, 1980s, and it was meant to be able to bring back the classical way in which people draw, paint, sculpt, figure. Um, but I do believe that David, what David and Peter are doing as well, holding that mission tight and close to them. Um, in addition, they're trying to make it a very world-class contemporary graduate program. And I do do this very exciting lecture series, which is open to the public, where I have, I'm humbled and honored to interview many luminaries that I basically select to bring in, and I ask them questions like when Roberta Smith came to the New York Times, I asked her, so how do I get a review in the New York Times? You know, I'm just so tired of not knowing this information. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the, you can see a lot of the videos online um, through the Academy, and so therefore it's open to the public for them to also hear information from these luminaries. Uh, we just did a wonderful talk with the uh, women of, of the gallery Sergeant's Daughters, uh, which is Meredith Rose and Allegra La Viola. And those two were so dynamic. I felt like I was running a marathon with them. And it was exciting conversation. And what's, what's wonderful is that uh, even though this was meant to be uh, for the visual arts, these conversations apply to many. So uh, we did have one session with two lovely people, one from uh, Creative Capital, another from uh, so Lisa from Creative Capital, and Courtney from New York Foundation for the Arts, and talk about grants. And Matthew Delegate uh, moderated that conversation, and many different people from different art forms came to that to learn about grants for artists, and that is up on the website as well. Great. So we're very conscious of, we're conscious of the fact that this information can apply to others. But to answer your question, I also teach boot camps and professional development, and I try to sit in on um, try to sit on critiques and meet with artists, young artists, graduate students there at the graduate program individually at NCAD. I mentor graduate students and also try to contribute to their visiting artist program as well. I do love um, do, doing what you do is having conversations with different people um, and uh, learning from other people. And that's essentially where I come from. So the, 
people that I select for the lecture series are people I think are out in the world that I want to know more information about. And then I try and get them front and center and ask them questions that a lot of people want to know about, um, like, how do you do this? How do you get that? How do you, how have you done this? Who are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's what I do for both. Great. Well, I'll I'll make sure and include some links uh, when I post this uh, episode to uh, to that lecture series and information. Uh, your website. People can find you online, by the way, if they want to get more information and get detailed information about all the things that we're talking about here. They can go to SharonLoudon.com, and uh, they can also find you on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? It's at Loudon Studio. L O U D E N and Studio, S-T-U-D-I-O, all one word. Thank you, John. That's very kind of you. Absolutely. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter, at thatjohnlane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook, Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening.